Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Matt Berninger. He's a musician best known as the frontman of The National, and he's coming out with his first solo album next month. It's called Serpentine Prison and was produced by Booker T. Jones, the legendary Memphis R&B and soul musician, songwriter, and record producer. Matt sat down with our staff writer, Sam Sadomsky, to talk about the songs that shaped him as a musician throughout his life. In their interview, he gets into the records his parents owned when he was a child, one of his first jobs at a driving range, and writing his early albums with The National. Let's hear it. Where are you calling from? Where are you at right now? Venice. Uh, Venice, California. This is my office. I'm trying to get this. Can I change my lighting? Hold on. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you do you. I was distracted by the beams of light. <laughs> well, it's a cool vibe there. How are yeah. things in Venice right now? Um, they are, um, you know, strange. Um and and uh, gloomy, but um, but Venice. I'm very lucky. I love this neighborhood. Um, it, I, you know, I can ride my bike to the beach. I, I spend a lot of time in the backyard, and we have a trampoline and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I feel really, really lucky to be in this type of a neighborhood during this type of a situation. Well, yeah. Well, congrats on the new record. Um, it's just I don't know. You've I've. I'm so familiar with like your catalog and I've heard you do so many different things, but mm-hmm. it's act, it's kind of surprising that the sound of this as your solo record with Booker T and everything, did you have this in mind for a while to do a solo record like this? No. Um, mostly I, I reached out to Booker in December of 2018 to do a covers album because he produced and arranged Stardust, which is one of my favorite records. And, and I'd met him, you know, 12 or 13 years before when I sang on his record, uh, The Road from Memphis. And I, I, I did a duet with Sharon Jones called Representing Memphis. Right. The process and the recording environment was so uh, intense and so, you know, it was surreal. Like Lauren Hill was, was around and Questlove and Lou Reed had just left and Biz Marquis was on his way in. And in the middle of this was uh, Booker and, and he was just like, just so, uh, just so relaxed. And so, and he was just so, so warm and so nice. And, and jump to last summer is when we finally got into the studio with the covers we wanted to do. But by this point, I had shared with Booker a lot of little bits of half-baked originals. Specifically, the originals I sent to him were a song called Distant Access, which I wrote with, with, um, Walt Martin, and that's out already, but um, it was Love So Little that I wrote with Mike Brewer, and that was laying around. So I sent him those two originals, and he right away was like, well, let's, you have any more? You know, let's, let's, and so I just started sharing with him all the sort of like um, songs, and then I wrote a new, bunch of new ones, you know, after we started talking about the originals. 
when we were in there in the studio doing everything, we recorded, I think, we, th- we recorded 19 songs. Oh, wow. I didn't want the record to be too long, and so we decided to put out just the 10, the 10 originals that fit best together. And then, then was, that's a solo album, you know. And, and it was, I mean, I was going to call it Matt Berninger and Friends or Matt Berninger's, Matt Berninger Posture S Serpentine Prison, but... Uh, it just sounds stupid. So, you know, so Scott was like, just call it, just pick the drop the apostrophe S. And, and that's when it was like, okay, this is a solo album. And I'm really happy it is. You know, I'm glad it turned into this. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to hear you say that you almost called it Matt Berninger and Friends because there's a thing That's what you where, could call like, everything I do, you know? Right. I was going to say. Or Matt Berninger like, and Enemies, you know? And, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a solo album, but it's also like one of your most collaborative releases. I mean, everything is just like every every project starts with like a, a just a little idea, and every project, the national, has grown into, you know, fifty friends. You know, right. the, the national. When I think of the national, I think of fifty people. It becomes a huge, huge family. You know, has music always been that way for you, like a real communal thing? I mean. No, no music. I mean, no music for me has always been either is is kind of always been a real personal thing, mostly private thing. You know, it's like most of my most profound musical experiences were alone in my room, you know, or on my mm. bike somewhere. Well, let's um, maybe start moving into some of your picks. The first one is Olivia Newton-John from Greece, hopelessly devoted to you. I was curious um, what your memories associated with that song are. Well, I mean, that is the first record I remember sort of like, you know, just laying on the floor and like flipping it over and opening it up and looking at all the pictures and and listening to obsessively. And I fell deep into the whole thing. I loved the movie, you know, Olivia Newton-John and and those songs um, just totally blew me away. And... And Hopelessly Devoted was, it's just that song is just, is just so beautifully written. I just think of like a little kid watching Greece. There's so many songs on there that should like appeal to like a young boy, like Grease Lightning or like any of those. Oh and my God. he like went right for oh like God. Hopelessly Devoted to you. The, you know, that is true. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like when you think somebody's singing about you, you just keep going back and listening to that song, you know, and, right. and a great song makes you think they wrote it about you, you know. So I thought Livia Newton-John was in love with me. There's nothing else for me to do I'm hopelessly devoted to you Were you in Cincinnati at this point? Yeah. What else do you remember from that era of your childhood? We lived in, you know, on a, in a suburban house in west side of Cincinnati on Kirkridge Drive, and and um, you know, my, my my brother came nine years later, but but it is my childhood. It was my sister and I, and my parents, and and my parents were really artsy, but my dad's a lawyer, and my mom was a substitute teacher, and 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 mostly just took care of us, and they didn't have a huge record collection. Like, I don't remember much rock and roll. I don't think they had any Stones or any... I don't even think mm-hmm. they had any Dylan, you know? They didn't have have Beatles. I don't know if my parents had any Beatles records. I'm not sure why. Right. I feel like my parents went to, went to like, a, a record store, like, once, and bought, like, ten records, and then that was... <laughs> that was those are the ten records that we had in our house for, like, the next decade. Um, right. And one of those albums was Willie Nelson's Stardust, which was produced by Booker T. Jones. Mm -hmm. Do you have any particular memories associated with that record? I didn't know it was like a covers record. I I don't think I knew what covers were, you know, at that point. I just heard Stardust 
was written in the 20s by Hoagie Carmichael and some other guy, right? That song is a song about a song about love. My stardust melody The memory of love's refrain Whenever I hear it now, I feel at home, you know, I feel, I just feel safe. I feel, uh, I feel loved because I was, you know, and like the minute I hear the guitar strums or, you know, of any song off of Stardust, there's just like, oh, what is that? And why, why am I suddenly feel a little bit calmer and, and more at ease, you know? Still in peaceful dreams, I see the road leads back to jump to high school and my sister joined a Columbia record house or something like that or Columbia music but it was great it was great it was it was a lot of music for really cheap and my sister brought home um, I remember in that first batch she had the queen is dead she had under blood red sky the 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 YouTube the live one yeah the live yeah. one I think right. she also had violent femmes and so I remember it wasn't until like I was like a sophomore or something. Then I I worked at a at a driving range and so I and I did I worked the front you know I I, I washed the balls I, I I worked at the front counter I worked at the candy desk I fixed the the video game this was right down the road from where I lived in in, in Miami Town Ohio it was called Green Tea Golf Golf Range and and it was like it was it was my first job job and I would have to drive, go around and pick up all the balls in it with a cage over this golf cart that was souped up with a better engine so it would go faster and could push the, the racks that picked up all the balls. I would drive around that set li- listening to The Queen is Dead nonstop, right? And so right. there's all these, like, douchebag golfers trying to hit me because um, that's what you do <laughs> when you're at a golf range and the guy in the cart goes out to pick up the balls. as like, finally, a target, you know? And the, the cage was, like, just regular, like, like fencing. So the balls, the, the holes were this big. So if they hit a line drive, it, it could hit me right in the face anytime. time. <laughs> if, it, if it got through that cage, because the balls were much smaller than the holes in the fucking cage were. Dads and from, from the parish, you know, who I see in church are up there trying to nail me with, a, with, a, with, a, with their drivers, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> with, their, with their two irons. They pull out their two irons so they could get a nice low shot to, to, to uh-huh. you know, take out one of my taillights. And, and so, yeah. and I was listening to the boy with a thorn in his side the whole right. time, you know. Which is like a real album with a kind of persecution complex to right, it. Right, totally. So I just, I totally connected with Morrissey and all his frustration and his desperate need for everybody just to listen to what he was trying to say. How can they look into my eyes and don't believe me? How can they hear me say those words still they don't believe me? Is this around the time, or like if we could pinpoint when music evolved from something you heard your parents playing to something you connected with for personal reasons and to something you thought, I can do this or I can contribute to this lineage? It wasn't till I met Scott and Mike Brewer and Casey Reese in, at the University of Cincinnati that I first started writing actual lyrics and thinking, oh, I could do this. Right, and this was your first band before the national. Yeah, yeah, and okay. and, and so so Nancy somehow you know 
I, they let me name it after my mom. They let me write half of the lyrics and melodies and let me sing a bunch of it. But um, I, I didn't play the guitar or anything. And I think I was just the most, Mike and I were the oldest and he was the, he was the most sort of like, let's start a band type of guy. And I was like, can I be in it type of guy? And, uh-huh. uh, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> that was the first time I was like, wait, maybe I could actually do this. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you feel that sense of purpose when you had started the band and you moved to New York? At what point was that? Like late 90s? Everybody in the National moved to New York in 96. Um, We all worked in design companies and we we didn't really do the band at all when we got to New York because nobody had any room or space. You know, we're all, we were, you know, when you move to New York, you usually sleep on people's floors for a month right. or three sure. or years. And then you just keep trying to get a, something with a little more space and less roommates. And, and so it wasn't till about several years after being in New York that I finally got settled in a, in a loft with my roommate, Jeff Salem. It was a dead end street meets a dead end street down by the Guanas Canal. And it was a corner. Right. Do you remember like what music was playing in the apartment around that time? There was a band called the Grifters that actually Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. They practiced in this in this converted loft before we moved in there. And what be- eventually became my bedroom, and which actually became the room where the National first started like writing songs and we got the four track out was the Grifters old practice space. You know, I, I remember being motivated by that. Like the Grifters, oh my god, the Grifters uh, recorded in this room and now it's my bedroom. So there is, you know, ghosts of possibility. And so around 99, I guess, is when the national started in Gu- this this loft in Guanas. Right. Were there conversations about the type of sound you wanted to have or your influences going into it? I was obsessed with <clears throat> Silver Jews and pavement, the the free recklessness of that, like slanted and enchanted, and then you know Starlight Walker or or the Silver Jews or B Thousand, right? Those 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 records changed me so much that I didn't really care if this music we were making sounded like anything else. I didn't care really. I think for me, it if it's if it just sounded true. I, I, I really liked it. Planet Enchanted is mostly just this, is, is so much dissonant, cacophonous chaos, right? But then right. T- tucked right in the middle is, is the song Here. Come join us in a prayer. We'll be waiting, waiting there. Everything's ending here. Just a nonstop, brave, reckless art you know the first couple of national records i actually didn't care if it sounded 
like what does what do the silver Jews sound like? You know, I mean, we got accused of sound of like copying silver Jews, and you know, the, I think really the first, early on, actually, though. Yeah, yeah, actually, the first Pitchfork review, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hilarious to think about now because that is funny. Yeah. yeah, and it was like might as well just wait for the next Silver Jews album, and and little did everybody know, it was like I was desperately waiting for the next Silver Jews album, too. <laughs> and it wasn't coming, so. Yeah, the na- I was you know I was trying to make a Silver's Jews record for sure. Right then, there's this three pack of songs you picked, which is like Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen, and Nick Cave, and I really associate all those artists with the songwriting that you kind of evolved into around the time of Alligator and Boxer. What was it about like those kind of brooding, dark male songwriters that you were trying to inhabit, or like? that you saw as a path forward because it wasn't a very popular style at the time. I can't think of a lot of people who were doing it. I think they just write about themselves and they write, Mm. they, they write courageously about themselves and everyone around them. You know, Tom Waits writes about his wife. Tom Waits wife writes about Tom Waits, you know, and, and and they do it together. Leonard Cohen, famous blue raincoat. There's a line in there, he says, and then you came home without Lily Marlene, right? You'd been to the station to meet every train You came home without Lily Marlene Who the hell is Lily Marlene? Do you know who Lily Marlene is? Yeah, no, I've done the same thing with that song where I've like... Someone said it's about Scientology Mm. and then other people think it's about him. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Lily Marlene is a was a famous song uh, that Marlena Dietrich made famous. But I love songs about the power of songs, and, and I love when songwriters write about like what is it about what is it about these songs that have has has has, has changed me or changed us. Yeah. Um, to get back to Tom Waits, that's actually a parallel between you guys that I didn't consider was like the how he writes with um, Kathleen, Kathleen Brennan. Yeah. yeah. Was that an influence on you at all? I know dragging Corinne against all of her. Uh, no, she <laughs> dragging her into the national was, wasn't a dragging. She loved it. She was she. she and when did you two meet and when did you get married? We met in Carroll Gardens um, up, you know, not far from that loft. Um, at a bar called Boat um, on Smith Street. Okay. And it's still there. And so I was sharing everything I was doing with the band with her, and she was a writer, and she was a brilliant editor. And and so I felt really safe with her chiming in on the lyrics. And and not only safe, but then Crin's, Crin's book collection suddenly informed me. And my record collection sort of informed her, and then we started sharing everything we love, and, and I became a much better writer. Right. Well, I, I also want to get back to Booker T. Yeah. Just because he's someone who had a big impact through all of your listening. So I was curious if, like, what that relationship was like and what the things in his music that you, I don't know, you draw upon are. Well, I mean, we've all heard Booker T. Every, I mean, Booker T. Booker, you hear Booker in places you don't even, you don't even know. All the way back to Mahalia Jackson, you know, to Otis Redding. To Bill Withers, then to Linda Ronstadt, Linda Ronstadt, you know, to, to yeah. Neil Young, to to you, it just keeps going, it just keeps going, it keeps going, and and Booker never stops collaborating, you know, and just working with artists, and so so I guess I specifically after I met him, I went back and like I got to, and then then I really started, 
And when I discovered melting pot, melting pot, I didn't get until about ten, uh, seven or eight years ago, I think, maybe. Um, there is emotional content and there is, you know, in wordless melody. Can you think of things that like he specifically brought to this group of songs or even the covers that yeah. felt new for you or like a challenge? I'll, 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 point, I'll point out one song, uh, The Collar of Your Shirt. We did it a few times and then and, and right when we got to the end every time, Booker was always like, hmm, and just like kept going a little bit. And at one point he's like, let's he was like, let's I feel like this can go further. And then he wrote the second half of that. And I started free, you know, free associating lyrics and things. And, and he really pushed me. So the last half of collar your shirt is very much a, all is like very much Booker T. And, and I wrote all those lyrics, I think, right. Most of them within like a, an hour or so of while we were making that song. And then I think I refined them overnight and came back and then sang it again. And so there's an example where Booker like really wanted me to dig further into what that song was talking about, take it further. And he was also like, it's not long enough. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not quite, it's like, I feel like we have three fourths of a song here, but but we we need something. Maybe because of that, the second part of Collier Shirt might be my favorite minute and a half or whatever that is of this whole record, you know? And, um, and maybe it's because I, 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 I could tell for me, it was new territory and it was new territory that, Booker pushed me into. The other big thing is I I don't I don't know if I'll ever record I, like recording that way where we would do three or four takes and Booker's like that's the one let's move on and and is just, that totally different than what the national yeah, does? Yeah, we tinker forever. Do you feel like the collaborative process is part of what keeps that alive for you? That feeling of like this couldn't have happened in a different room with a different group of people. No, it can happen in any room with any group of people. Mm. And, 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 and it happens, in, it, it, it's not like this is the first time it's happened to me. It's, it's happened to me every band practice. Right. It's, hap- it's happened every time the National gets in a room together. If you're having a good time, then you're probably going to make something good out of it. And that's always what the National has always been. Matt's album, Serpentine Prison, will be available on October 16th. If you need some new music in the meantime, call our Pitchfork Review hotline at 917-524-7371. Leave us a voicemail and Pitchfork's music critics will try to recommend you something new. Again, that number is 917-524-7371. We'll take a listen and pick a few to feature on an upcoming episode. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel, Sam Sadomsky did the interview that was featured on this episode. You can follow Sam on Twitter at S. Sadomsky. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by our senior producer, Caitlin Pierce, and assistant producer, Ben Montoya. It was edited by Todd Whitney and Andy Cush. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Our original music is by Andrew Eben of Basement Crafts. This episode was mixed and scored by Ben Montoya. Special thanks to Amy Phillips and Julie Shen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also send an email to podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week. From P-
Talks.